deal with uh, being a Christian in a uh, post-Christian country. You know, Christianity has uh, has in America has been, I guess I don't know if you'd say blessed or cursed, but uh, has been kind of the mainstream center of this country for years and years. And over the last fifty years, slowly but surely has become more and more marginalized and pushed to the center. And so a lot of Christians are really upset about that. And they're kind of have their feelings hurt and they're mad and they still are claiming for rights and we're Christian and we're a Christian nation and you know, God bless America and God and country and you know and, and all and we we should still be um saying Merry Christmas at Target and Walmart and not happy holidays and we still should have certain rights and certain and, and it's just Put down the fight, okay? It's over. It's gone. We're not a Christian nation anymore. That's our heritage. We're thankful for it. That's not who we are. And the faster we realize that Christendom, okay, the, the assumed Christian kingdom that we supposedly lived in, that we really never lived in, in, our, in this country, is gone. It's, it's a past, you know, deal for us. And it is dead. So let's go ahead and throw some more dirt on it. And let's move on to the reality that we are living in a post-Christian world where God has called us to be missionaries. And let me tell you a little dirty truth here. We have always been called to be missionaries. We just were disobedient to do what God has called us to do over the last 50 to 100 years. And that's the reason the country is in the mess that it's in right now is because Christians haven't been who God has called us to be. You say, well, I just hate the thought of us being a post-Christian country and being a secular, humanistic nation and what kind of like china communist china because the gospel's doing great there and so you know understand it's uncomfortable it might not be the way that your grandparents raised you or the way that you grew up or the way that you thought things would be in our country but but the the world has changed the country has changed and these things are cyclical and god has not called us first and foremost to be um american citizens he's called us as believers if you're if you have a relationship with jesus that you're uh an exile you're a sojourner your citizenship, first and foremost, resides with King Jesus. And there's an eternal kingdom of which he reigns, and there's no recounts, okay? There's no votes, there's no, it's, he's in charge. And, and so we, that's where our citizenship lies. And so while we live in this earth, we have to awaken to the reality that has been true, but hopefully it will be a little easier to realize today that we have been called to live our lives as missionaries for his glory. And so how do we function in a post-Christian society? Um, and, and I think the answer is we can go back about 2,000 years to 1 Peter and we find a pre-Christian society, a very, a very immoral, um, ungodly place uh, that, that the context of this church was starters, church is. And Peter writes a letter to believers that are scattered in a, in a region uh, pretty far north of Jerusalem uh, region of Cappadocia and, and Galatia, and today we modern Turkey. And that's the region they're in. And he's writing to these believers that are scattered. They're living in really hard places. And he's telling them, okay, I want to tell you how you can thrive as the people of God in that environment. I want to give you some tools to help you understand that, that it's not a curse that you live where you are. And it's not, uh, it's not a bad thing. You're, God has put you there to share with other people the hope that is within you. And so how do you function like that? And so the, the subtitle to this series, Gospel Community on Mission, God is forming a gospel community. We at Cross Life Church is, exists as a gospel community. Gospel is 
the power of God unto salvation is the message of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. That Jesus died, he lived a perfect life, he died, was buried, rose again, and we, that's what defines us as the gospel. We call people to repent and to trust in Jesus who provides their righteousness, Jesus who provides their morality, Jesus who provides their goodness. You, you can't be so bad that God can't save you, nor are you so good that you don't need Jesus. You're messed up. You're bad. And moralism isn't going to get you to heaven any more than going after your own selfish desires and living in immorality is going to get you to heaven. Being irreligious or being hyper-religious, either way, is a, is a path to destruction. But, but surrendering your life to the gospel and living based, putting your faith and trust in what Jesus has done in his righteousness, in his death on the cross, that's where life is. And that's what defines us as a community. But God has not saved us just to sit and soak and, and, and turn inward and wait till Jesus comes back and pack the bags and, and you know, move out in the woods and circle the wagons and have our own little you know, Christian bubble. No, he has placed us in the middle of the world that we live in, in exile, by his sovereign plan to be a light in a dark place. So how do we do that? How do we thrive? Last week we looked at how uh, from the margins of society that God can, can, has called us to do more than just survive, but to thrive. And it is as sojourners and exiles that the world observes our alternative lifestyle, our alternative values, our alternative um, priorities and in a different kind of community and as god as, as people in the world observe that god has called us um, to do this and, and designed his people to live as an alternative community in an incredibly attractive awesome way that point people to jesus i mean to gather this past friday and uh, many of you guys were there some of you were unable to be there for different reasons but uh but to have uh, to meet together as a kind of a Thanksgiving, um, you know, meal together as Cross Life Church, and to reflect upon the different things God has done in our lives and through our lives over the last year, the the trials, the tribulations, the the highs and the lows that all of us have experienced in our lives, and to reflect upon what He's done in the last year with a group of people from divergent backgrounds who, to be honest, for the majority of the folks that were in that room, about 65 of us, none of us knew the other one a year ago, you know, for the most part. A year ago, we were scattered, and God has brought these people together, you, with all these different stories and how incredible it is that God has a different story and different plan, and He's working a different purpose in your life that all flow into the greater purpose of God's glory and, and illuminating the light of the gospel in a dark world. We are to be an alternative people. Why would you? Why do you love me? Why would I love you? Why would you love one another? So I know you love me. I'm I'm such a wonderful, amazing person. Of course you would love me. Yeah, all of us have that problem. We always think, you know, we're so lovable. Why don't other people know how lovable and amazing we are? And we don't realize that we're probably not as easy to love as other people. None of us have really good self-awareness, right? But the fact that the gospel compels me to love you and for you to love me, even though we're different. Even though we have, we have a lot of baggage and issues in both of our lives and our past, and our, but, but that Jesus would call us to be together, even though we come from different generations and from different parts of the country and from different um, families and from different whatever backgrounds, God has called us together to be a gospel community on mission, to thrive. And so um, last week we looked at the first several verses that, that 
drive home the fact that we are exiles, that we are sojourners, that we, are, we do not live primarily as citizens of America, but we live as citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God. And so our allegiance, first and foremost, is in heaven. And so that was kind of the first. Let me read this to you, and then we'll get into the verses for this week. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those whom are the elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be God, be the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercies. And so he's going to begin, he's going to talk about the greatness of our salvation, the greatness of what he has done in our lives. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a real, confident, living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. He said, well, what do I have hope in? What is the basis upon my hope in Christ? The fact that there's an empty tomb is the basis of your hope. Okay, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of different religions out there. There's a lot of different people calling themselves God and saying, follow their path, follow their ways, follow their pillars, follow their um, religious teachings. But there's only one that has uh, a person who claimed to be not just the shower of the way or the, know the way or know the light, but to say he was the light, he was the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And not only did Jesus claim to be God, but he was crucified, dead, and then resurrected, came back to life. Okay, there's a lot of people claim to be God. A lot of people claim to be the way, but the, none of them have been resurrected from the dead. I mean, that's a kind of significant credibility boost, is it not? For Jesus to be resurrected from the dead. I mean, come on. So we have a living hope. We said, what do you base your hope on? But that my God is not dead, that he is alive, that there's a tomb empty. You know, I, I had the privilege of spending a really short time to Jerusalem, really, to be honest, too short of a time to be in that such an incredible, wonderful place, be in the Holy Land. And, and I remember sitting in um, the I didn't sit, but walking into the tombs, one of the possible tombs where Jesus' was, body was likely buried. And I, I'll be honest, you know, one of the things that was kind of interesting about being in Jerusalem is how uninteresting it was being in Jerusalem. I mean, the fact that to sit in the tomb and how, um, you know, you think there would be just this sense of just awesomeness that this is where the resurrection happened. And I, I don't... I don't know if I just messed up or something or matter with me, but what shocked me is the fact that the tomb is empty. I'm not really sure what I was doing there. It's like, what's the point of being here? Jesus isn't in here. What is the point of that? I mean, it's cool to know that think about this. It could be this it's very likely the place where his body, um, you know, was, was laid before uh, after he died and then he came back to life and folded up his clothes and put them there and, the, and then appears to the, um, to the disciples. And what, what an amazing thought, you know? But at the same time, he, you know, he's not there. I mean, he was, Jesus is closer to me here in Johnson City than he was sitting in a tomb in Jerusalem because he's not there. But he indwells me, dwells you as followers of Christ, right? Incredible. We have a living hope of the resurrection. Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation and ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, 
though now for a little while, if necessary. Now I'm into the verses for this week, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, what, what, what is he talking about here? Okay, he's talking about this secure salvation that we have. We have a living hope we, based upon the fact that there's a resurrection and God has kept us secure in that hope. The hope is not based upon your ability to maintain it. It's based upon his ability. God has maintained and is maintaining your salvation. He has caused you to be born again, the passage says. He said, well, I don't agree, I don't agree with that. Well, that's what it says. So unless you can come up with a way, other way of interpreting, I don't really think you have a choice to say you don't agree with that. God has caused you to be born again. Uh, instead of fighting that, why don't you rest in that? Rest in the fact that you're not the smartest tool in the shed, but God in his grace opened your eyes, nor am I, by the way. God in his grace opened our eyes to our need for Christ and has saved us and has secured us and is keeping us. Is protecting that salvation that I would be incapable of maintaining. I can't maintain my righteousness. I can't maintain my goodness. I can't maintain anything. And I can't save myself any more than I can keep saving myself and maintain my salvation. Jesus has saved us. He is in the process of continuing to save us, and he will save us. It's a concept of three different parts of salvation. There's past tense, present, uh, past tense, thank you, past tense salvation, that, that you, have been, uh, you have been redeemed. Okay, justified, past tense salvation. Jesus has justified us. Present tense, we have been saved, we're being saved. That's sanctification. It's the process that if you are a follower of Christ that has been justified, you're in the process right now of sanctification. You say, what does that mean? That's what we're talking about today. That's the refining fire. That's where God is slowly taking the Jesus that is ever present in you and the righteousness that is in you that he sees and getting your outside to match what's already true on the inside. Slowly, he's conforming you to make you look, act, smell a lot more like Jesus than like you do, right? And so he is sanctifying you. And this is a process that continues until heaven. You're, you're not going to finish it. You don't like finish it 15 years into being a follower of Jesus. It doesn't, you're going to continue that. You say, well, does it really take that long? Yeah, it's because you're that bad apart from God. It's going to take forever until, uh, well, on, the, on this earth it would take forever. But, but fortunately, that's not the end of the salvation. He has saved us, he is saving us, and he will save us. Future tense, salvation. One day you will be glorified. Flesh is taken away. You're given a glorified body. You're not going to be contending with the fleshly desires that you have known all your life. And there's no longer that battle going on within you. Now you are completely on the outside like you have been made through Jesus on the inside. So God is saving us from the, uh, he has saved us from the penalty of sin, past tense. There'll be a quiz on this later, so you might write this down. He's saving us from the, the penalty of sin, past tense. He is saving us from the power of sin, present tense. You, if you sin, you, cho- you chose to sin. You said, well, I mean, the devil's so strong, my flesh is so strong, my temptations are so strong, I just could not resist. Oh, you could, by God's grace, you could have. He saved you from the power of sin. You don't have to sin anymore. You sin, it's a choice. Power of sin. And he's going to one day save us from the presence of sin. It'll be removed from us. We'll be removed from it. 
will be away from the presence of sin. That's the process of salvation. And so understanding that past, present, future tenses of salvation will help us understand this passage. So he says, you have a living hope, past tense salvation. God has saved you, but he's in the process of sanctifying you and, and for a future glory that you will be experiencing salvation in the future. So in this you rejoice, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, the title of the message, if you read your uh, newsletter email, and uh, I don't, it's not on here, but it might be in the bulletin, is why, this is, what we're talking about this morning is why your bad day is really good. Why would you have a bad day? It's actually awesome. It's really a good thing. It's all about perspective here. When you're having a bad day, it's really a good thing because God uses the bad days to conform us to the image of Christ, to declare his glory to a lost and fallen world. He does a lot of things and has a lot of purposes in your bad day. And, and I want to tell you, we have the most sissified, wimpy, theologically puny, girly Christianity has been preached and taught and modeled in America for the last hundred years. It is pathetic. It's the most potpourri-filled, pretty boy girly Christianity that's disgusting un, and unbiblical and wrong. I mean, I, I, I could make fun of so many false teachers that are out there that many of you, you might watch and you might listen to and you might think are great and they might be good uh, motivational speakers, good thing, but they are bad preachers of the gospel. But let me, let me give you some theology here. Sing a little, I'm not going to sing it for you. I, I could, but um, a hymn. And, and a lot of the stuff we've been singing this morning is this kind of stuff. It's got some robust theology in it. It's some good stuff. So I don't mean to say that there's not some good stuff being written. But let me give you some old stuff. Um, again, we just celebrated um, uh, one of my favorite holidays um, a couple weeks ago. Not Halloween, but Reformation Day. Martin Luther um, bowed up on the Catholic Church, which was the church at that day, and nailed to the door 95 reasons why they're, what they're doing was unbiblical and and so the 95 Thesis started the Protestant Reformation, unbelievable. But he wrote this hymn. Listen to this. This is some manly gospel truth here. Man, this will just make you just want to mm, tackle somebody for Jesus, you know? Listen to this. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. What is a bulwark? That's like, a, that's like an awesome fortified... That's a lot of guns. That's the big guns. Big guns are never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortar, mortal ills prevailing. That's bad times. For still our ancient foe, that would be the devil, does seek to work us woe. He's trying to, he's wearing us out. Man, he is, will not stop. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not he is equal. What does that mean? That means that you are no fit. Or you, you, you don't have a snowball's chance of winning a battle with the devil. You don't have, he's not some cute little, you know, whatever adversary that you contend with. The devil's just bothering me. The, devil's, the devil is far too mighty to be worried about you sitting here in Johnson City, Tennessee. Okay? He, he is not everywhere, number one. Number two, he has got bigger fish to fry. He's trying to bring down kingdoms and countries and nations. He's got a lot bigger stuff than worry about you. Now, he has his minions, and they're after you. But understand that, that you, you don't stand a chance against any of them, but that's nothing to fear. Listen, 
Did we in our own strength confide that our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, Jesus Christ, the man of God's own choosing? Just ask, just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, that means, that means uh, um, the uh, Lord of hosts, Lord of the heavens and the, the armies of heaven. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. He, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, he will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little world word shall fell him. The word above all earthly powers. To thanks, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That is some theology. And then we have preachers filling basketball stadiums with big teeth, smiling at everybody, telling them how happy life is and how God's going to give you your best life now. And you can have and you can have a good life. I know there's bad times, but you can have your best life. You just keep believing happy thoughts and you just be happy happy and it'll be great and you'll have a wonderful life. And we're, and I'm telling you, there is much more to the word of God that gives us some meat. And if you're clinging to your best life now to get you through trials and tribulations and suffering, I'm telling you, you are going to have a hard time and you're going to turn up really hacked off and mad at God because he did not produce the gumball, as you requested when you put the quarter in the God machine and turn the knob. And you got suffering and you got pain and you have loss and you have heartache and you don't understand because God's supposed to be doing whatever you want. You're the center of the universe and he's your God and he's supposed to do what you want. No, that is an idol. That is not the God of the Bible. Let me tell you something. The God of the Bible is so awesome and amazing that he can sovereignly use suffering, tribulation, devastation in your life for his glory let me go beyond that the god of the bible is so awesome that he can purpose he can ordain suffering in your life for his glory and use it for you're telling me that the god of the bible will wound me will hurt me yeah i am i'm telling you that so that's just mean no, it's awesome. <laughs> well, how is it awesome? Well, let me try to help you understand that. Because, boy, if you will come to this understanding, boy, it will, first of all, it will change your life as you understand what the Bible teaches about suffering. But you will, un, you will be able to, um, undoubtedly, there will come a time where you're going to be dealing with struggles in your life, tr- t- uh, temptation, suffering, whatever it is. In fact, the scripture here says various trials. It means all sorts of trials. It could be, um, sin temptation. It could be um, wounded by other people hurting you. It could be a lot of different things. But understand that he uses those things. Here's what it says. In this you rejoice. That, that, that word rejoice, and this whole thing I'm talking about seems really weird. I, for many of you, you're going, what in the world is this guy talking about? And if it wasn't embarrassing, you probably would get up and walk out of here, and I'm glad that you won't. But he says, in this you rejoice. That, that word rejoice 
is a foreign world in, word in ancient Greek manuscripts. In a lot of the ancient Greek writings, they really didn't have, they didn't really use this word because they really didn't have a context to use the word. You only find this word really in New Testament writings used by the New Testament writers. Well, why is that? Well, because the concept, they didn't really understand it. It was only Christian writers that hooked onto this world because, word because it refers to spiritual joy, spiritual joy that flows from the contemplation of God and of salvation. Spiritual joy that flows from the contemplation of God and His salvation. So how could you rejoice in hard times if you couldn't see beyond the hard times, behind, beyond the temporal circumstances to see an eternal joy, an eternal salvation, that you could see the end game? See, the way you endure through sufferings is by seeing the end game. When you can see what's going to happen at the end, then you can endure the temporal stuff. It's not as big of a deal when you know what's coming. But if, if this is all that there is, it's far too much for any of us to endure. So in this, you rejoice. You have joy, through, though for a little while, love that. You might want to underline that in your Bible. For a little while, okay, this is temporal. The worst day is still a blip on the earth. It's a, it's a nanosecond compared to eternity, just for a little while. If necessary, that's another one to underline, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, your bad day is good because of a couple things. Your bad day is good, first of all, because of God's plan. Your bad day is really good because of God's plan. It says, rejoice in this, that if you, um, that though for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. That phrase, if necessary, is beautiful because what it means is that if you are going through trials and tribulations and struggles and challenges in your life, it's necessary. It's necessary. God would not allow you to go through it if it wasn't necessary, if he didn't have a purpose for it, if he wasn't going to use it. God would not allow his children, his people, to suffer for no reason. Understand that. That's one of the reasons why this is a God who we can trust even when times get horrifically tough because it is necessary. Why is it necessary? I didn't do anything. It's not my fault. I'm not wrong. Well, you may have done something. Certainly, it's worth praying about. God, is there something, is there some sin in my life that you want to convict me of or reveal to me that I need to do? That's a good question to ask. But, you know, often it's not because of the bad things we've done. But God has another purpose in it. That's the whole point of the book of Job. Job goes through horrific suffering. I'm not going to rebuild the story for you, but all of his friends come to him and they sit and they, they listen for a long time. They weep with him for a long time, which is awesome, in silence. Just being there with his presence. His presence. And then they begin to come up with some reason. Okay, uh, all right, Job, what have you done? There's got to be something. I mean, this bad stuff wouldn't be happening to you if you didn't do something. You've, you've hacked God off somehow. What have you done to make God mad? Why are you in? That wasn't the point. That wasn't why Job was suffering. It wasn't because he had done something bad. It was because God was showing him that he is good even in hard times. That the Lord, blessed be the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes it away. He gives me stuff I don't deserve. So if he takes away the stuff I don't deserve, how can I get mad at God? Job was revealing that through his suffering, showing that God is worthy to be worshipped even when it doesn't get you health or wealth or prosperity, which is a false gospel nauseatingly preached throughout our country god does not is worthy of being worshiped god is worthy of being worshiped even apart from wealth and health and prosperity if necessary 
you have been grieved by various trials. The, the, the thought is that in this life, the believer is continuously rejoicing in the living hope, even though there are times of grief that results in various kinds of trials. Temporal pleasure in eternal grief versus temporal trials and grief in eternal reward. We can have temporal pleasure in eternal grief, or we can have temporal grief in eternal reward. That would be the better that would be the better thing. In fact, we, we're told in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 um, that these things are momentary light afflictions. In fact, let me, let me flip there really quick. This is so worth it. You might want to write this first down. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Do not lose heart. Verse 16. Though our outer nature, body, is wasting away and our inner nature is being renewed day by day for this slight momentary affliction. I love that phrase this slight momentary affliction if you suffered the majority of your life it still compared to eternity is considered a hiccup as compared to the glory of god and the glory that you will experience in eternity it is a slight momentary affliction this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are un seen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal second corinthians chapter 4 verses 16 through 18 momentary light afflictions your bad day is really good because of god's plan because it is necessary god has a plan he has a purpose that he's working in your life and you can rest in that truth you say, well, how can God use evil to accomplish his will? Let me just give you another uh, scripture reference, because if you can't come grasp this, it's going to be difficult. Acts chapter 2, verse um, 23. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and here's what he says. He says, this Jesus, given over to you by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of godless men. What is he saying? This Jesus, who was given over to you by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed. And you're guilty. God had a purpose, eternally, predetermined plan, foreknowledge. Okay? Jesus wasn't crucified because God wasn't, he was kind of napping that day and he wasn't looking and suddenly they grabbed him and they threw him in jail and before he knew it, he was nailed to to a cross, and God was like, wow, what am I going to do with this? What? No, this was the predetermined plan in the foreknowledge of God. God knew. Jesus said, nobody takes my life. I willingly lay it down, right? So it's the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, but you crucified him by the hands of godless men. So who's guilty for the crucifixion of Jesus? Is it God or is it man? How many says God? How many says man? Nobody wants to vote. Okay, how many says both? The answer is both. Trick question there, sorry. Um, the answer is both. God ordained, but, but God nonetheless holds man responsible for his sin. God can, in his sovereign plan, I don't understand how it works, but in his sovereign plan, he can use our sin, selfishness, evil for that matter, to accomplish his will. You see it in the end of Genesis, which we're going to begin in January, studying through the patriarchs and looking at the rest of the story of Genesis 12 through 50 in our life groups. I hope you'll jump into that in January, if not before. But when we get to Joseph, you're going to see 
uh, Joseph says uh, to his brothers, these things that you did to me, that you caught, you meant for bad, you meant for evil, God meant for good. See, it's through them selling their brother into slavery, them faking their brother's death, all of the persecution and the hardship that Joseph went through in his life that God elevated him and his humility to the highest point, second highest point in the nation of Egypt. And it was through that that in a famine, his family was able to come to get food when they would have died apart from the salvation of their brother. So through them killing their brother in slavery, in essence, God has provided salvation for them. You see that? God is awesome at taking bad times and using them for his plan and his purposes and his glory. And that is a robust uh, theology right there. When you grasp the fact that God is sovereign, even in suffering, and even can use the evil of the world to accomplish his glorious purposes, it's an amazing place to be where we can rest in the fact that God really is the boss. He really is in charge. He really is sovereign king over creation. Yes, he is. So what do we do about that? Well, so that, how, why does he use this? It says, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold and that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So your, your bad day is really good because of God's plan. Secondly, because of God's purpose. What is his purpose? His purpose is found in verse 7. It is to, that, that these sufferings may be found, that these trials that you're going through may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. They're going to result in praise and glory and honor. According to 1, Corinthians, or 1 Peter 4.19, it says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God's faithful. He's a faithful creator. So that you're suffering, I understand, entrust your soul to God who is good, um, who is a faithful creator while you're doing good, while you're hanging in there and you're, you're you know, dealing with these struggles, these challenges, because God has a purpose. It's going to result in the praise and glory and the honor of God when, when, this is the part that we don't like, it says at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's when. That's the end of times. It, it'll, it might be a little while, but be rest assured, God will establish his glory and we will look back and we will go, wow, that was amazing ride. It was tough. It was hard. But wow, how awesome God is and how worthy of glory and of honor and of praise to look at how he has done just an incredible work with my um, struggles and the challenges of my life. And for that matter, the sufferings of Jesus. Wow. God is good because of his plan, because of his purpose, that there's going to result in praise and glory and honor when? At the revelation of Jesus. And then in the midst of that, he refines us and he's transforming, sanctifying us. Look at Psalms, um, you can write this down, Psalms 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are, are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the, on the ground, purified seven times. Proverbs 27, 21 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise, by the things he says. Um, in the midst of suffering, if you can praise God, that reveals your heart. But when, when suffering comes and the heat gets turned up in your life 
and you start blaming God, well, that, that reveals something. It reveals something. That's where we see really what's going on, what's underneath the hood. Isaiah 48.10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. God, God doesn't test us as in to um, trip us up. It's not temptation, but he tests us as in to reveal what's really going on in our lives, where we're really at, because he wants to refine us. He wants to purify us. Literally, this word is, is talking about the refiner's fire that you take precious metals and you, you crank up the heat, and by that, it, it slowly burns off the impurities. And what you have is a, is a more valuable product. Does that make sense? And so um, God's purposes, he enables these things. Um, he, he allows sufferings to enable us to live by faith. Um, verse 7, again, test the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold and silver, though it's tested by fire. It helps us to live by faith. That, verse 7, tested genuineness of your faith. How genuine, how authentic is your faith? Let me, let me tell you this. There's some of your some backgrounds of different groups, um, Christians have classes in different denominations and, you know, different sects of um, Christianity, and, and they call it confirmation class. And you go through these classes, you get to a certain age, and, and, and if you can answer all the questions right, then you'll be confirmed, and it's basically, it's like a stamp, you're in, okay? Now, you might not have repented of your sin, put your trust in Jesus, that's, but you've at least answered the questions, and so you're good, you, you've showed proficiency of the, you know, information, the knowledge. I want you to understand that biblically, confirmation is not a class, it's suffering. Confirmation comes, God confirms our, and reveals the authenticity of our salvation through suffering. You understand that? So the, the genuineness of our faith is revealed through suffering, through challenges, through hard times, when the fact that Jesus is enough. You see, Jesus is not revealed glorious and wonderful when you have the house with the white picket fence. I, I know that personally because I lived in one for about five months. Um, about a year ago, not less than a year ago, we were, yeah, well, a year ago, we moved into a house that some folks had allowed us to rent um, that was more than we could afford. It was a really nice, we, we got to live in our white picket house fence um, for a little while. And um, that's a lot of stuff to paint, all that picket fence. It's nearly not worth it. But nonetheless, um, we're living there. And, and I want you to know that God was revealed um, glorious, not in the time that we were there because we're living in this awesome, really cool house. But when we found out that the house was going to be sold and we didn't have a place to go after that and we're trying to think, okay, what are we supposed to do with our family because our house in Mississippi hasn't sold and now we're, we've been living in this house and they're going to sell it and now what are we going to do? And, and then we find out we have a fifth baby coming, which is awesome, but not you know, our ideal timing here. And uh, we're going to have to relocate our family and what are we going to do? And in the crisis of what are we going to do? When I'm telling you, I wanted to get in the fetal position and hide up in a corner somewhere and just, you know, hide, you know just escape. That's where God shows me, I'm powerful. I can handle this. I can handle it. And, and in the midst of, of just a couple months, not much more than 30 days, all the pieces begin to fall into place. We get a contract on our house in Mississippi. We're able to get another house, make one move. Everything begins to fall into place. And God was shown glorious through our sufferings, not through the nice house. That makes sense. That's true in all of our lives. So it's not wealth and prosperity that's going to show God glorious. It's suffering 
and when God is faithful in the midst of that. And you know what? That's why I think that things are going to get worse in our country before they get better. Because the worse they get, the more glorious the gospel is seen. The more beautiful and as the only hope it becomes. Right now, it's, yeah, we can have Jesus and we can have our whatever. And it looks, and, and really, to be honest, we have Jesus in our idols. And we've been, Christianity in America has been able to have both of those things. And, and make it look like Jesus can be, yeah, you just tack him on to all your other stuff, and it's great. You know? Which, to be honest, that's not biblical Christianity. And many of the people that they think that's what Christianity is, it isn't it. But now when those things are taken away and, and suffering comes and it becomes difficult and, and Christianity is marginalized and yet Jesus is enough, that's where we can thrive and people see there's a difference in our walk with the Lord. All right, let me hit the rest of these um, just for sake of time, this is really almost two chunks of Scripture that we could spend two to three weeks on, but we're going to just hit the highlights and get through this next section so we'll be ready for um, uh, verse 13 next week. But it says in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls this suffering is going to be worth it. And you say, well, I don't understand. I mean, you're talking about we're suffering and we're enduring all of this for a future honor and glory that's been given to God at the revelation of Jesus. How long are we going to wait for that? I mean, I would like to feel Jesus. I would like to see Jesus. I would like to have my cake and eat it too right now. I want it now. I don't want to wait for Jesus. And here's what's beautiful about that. He says in verse 8, it, what's awesome is the fact that you love Jesus even though he's not sitting next to you and hanging out with you every day, physically and bodily for him. His spirit is within you. But though you have not seen him, you love him. That is a huge testimony of the gospel. And, and though you do not um, now see him, you believe him. You, trace, you trust him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Words can't explain the joy that you experience in suffering for the Jesus that you don't even see face to face, but you know to be true, and you will see him face to face one day. And you're filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'm telling you, heaven is going to be so much sweeter. In fact, John chapter 20, verse 29, you remember doubting Thomas? You know, Jesus, I believe Jesus is risen from the dead when I feel the holes in his hands and, and I see the scar. Then I'll believe he's resurrected. That's what Thomas says. And then Jesus graciously goes to Thomas and reveals himself and lets him touch the scars. And he goes, oh, wow, I, you really are resurrected. And Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen? <laughs> Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. That's you. That's me. I've seen Jesus physically. I've certainly seen him. I've seen him working. I've sensed his presence. I've seen him do amazing things in my life. And you've seen him undoubtedly do amazing things in your life. So I, I don't doubt that he's real. And I don't doubt that he's really there. I've seen the footprints and the movement of God all around me. And the manifestation of Jesus and his power. But I don't see him physically. So if talking about the future glorification, future glorification fuels us in hard times. So, which brings us to, the, to the, the last section here, verses 10, 11, and 12. Let me read them for you and make a couple comments, then we're done. Concerning this great salvation, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about this grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time 
the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings and subsequent glories of Christ, he's referring to. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that you have now been, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, that's another word for the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. What is he saying? Really quickly, the amazement of the prophets. The prophets were amazed. What were the prophets amazed for? Because they searched diligently to understand this prophecy that had been given in Genesis chapter 3, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first prophecy about Jesus. And then there's prophecies again and again through Noah and then Abraham and then on through the rest of the patriarchs all the way to um, Samuel and to David and um, through Moses, for that matter, Samuel and David and then Solomon and then others, the prophecies, Isaiah and Hosea and Micah and uh, prophecies about this future Messiah that will come, that will suffer, but will deliver his people from their sins and from oppression of this world. These prophecies that the prophets looked for these things to be fulfilled. So what's the purpose of a prophet? Well, the prophet's importance wasn't their rebukes often, but it was their predictions about future salvation and deliverance that was one of the blessings of the prophets. But they searched diligently. So the amazement of the prophets, number one, they searched intensely, meticulously, carefully scrutinizing, kind of like the CSI, okay, you know, of, of their day, spiritually, you know, digging, understanding, trying to understand the, the spiritual DNA of what was happening to, to, to figure out when Jesus would return, when, when he would come for the first time, when the Messiah would come. They searched, they inquired carefully, again, the word diligent inquiring, communicating the, um, the intensity of their search and the enlightenment um, and insight for this enlightenment and insight. They were intensely trying to understand it. So their search. Secondly, their source. It says they were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. That's a little hint for us about how Scripture was written, how the... Um, the word of God is, is, is revealed, that it is, the word, it is the revelation of God. God is revealed through the prophets, spirit of Christ in them, writing these things down. I don't have time to go into that more in depth, but the revelation of God, likely through the scriptures, recorded in the teachings of the prophets. Um, and then he says, now revealed was to be ours. See, we lament we lament. We're upset that we didn't get to live in the biblical times and we weren't able to see the prophets with these proclamations and see incredible wonder of, of King David in, in Jerusalem and, and, and these miraculous things um, happening in the time. We weren't able to be there when uh, Jesus was born and sing with the shepherds when he's placed in this little manger. We weren't there to watch the ministry of Jesus as he feeds the 5,000 or calms the sea on the, uh, after the, the storm or, or see him... Um, through the crucifixion, see the resurrection. We, we grieve over this. And yet, he says the prophets wish that they could have had the, the, uh, the beauty that we have of looking at the whole story and looking back upon the, the finished work of Christ until the second coming. What God has done to this point to provide salvation. What we lament, not living in biblical times, we are most blessed having the fuller revelation of God's Plans. So their search to understand what was happening, their source that God has revealed these things, and, and he has revealed the sufferings, the prediction of the sufferings in verse 11, and the subsequent glories, the glory. Lastly, 
the amazement of the angels. It says these things that angels long to look. Basically, what that means is, is angels, and this a lot of people don't understand this about angels, but there's, uh, God created all the angels. They were good. They served God. They worshiped God. They did what they're supposed to do. They were created to do, and, and they did what God told them to do. But a third of them rebelled against God, led by Lucifer, and they, they are now fallen angels. And so they do not have an opportunity to repent and come back to God. They, they have betrayed um, the highest treason against God. And he has created a lake of fire where they will one day be destroyed. And all those who have rejected Christ will one day be sent to hell also, who have died apart from Christ, will be sent to that same place created for the, um, the angels and for Lucifer. But yet it says that the, the angels long to see into the salvation that's provided for us. Um, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, The manifold wisdom of God is being displayed through the church, the gospel community, on mission. The manifold wisdom of God is being displayed through the church to the principalities and the rulers of the air. He's talking about to the demons and to the angels. They see God's glory and that God alone is worthy of being worshipped as they see God take a bunch of people who are self-absorbed, who are running away from God, or doing whatever they want to do, and God beginning to redeem them and create a people that that thrives in the midst of suffering, that thrives in the midst of tribulation, that thrives in the midst of the challenges of life and displays his glory and displays a living, real, sure, solid hope. And through that, through that thriving, the glory of Christ is seen in our lives and God takes this gospel community of people and our divergent stories and illuminates how awesome Jesus is to the world around us. And so understand, the greatest testimony of, of God in your life, the greatest testimony is when Jesus is enough, when times are tough, when things are, are, when there's struggles in your life and you show that Christ alone is worthy. That's how God reveals his glory. And God reveals his honor in your life. How do we thrive? And we look to the future glories that we are dealing with momentary light afflictions compared to the surpassing weight of glory that awaits us in heaven. And so have hope, have hope, encourage one another. I need you to tell me to have hope. You need me to tell you to have hope. Realize we are just sojourners passing through. Don't expect this world to be perfect and easy and simple. This isn't our home. Don't expect everybody to be nice and sweet to you and kind. You are living in a foreign land. That was true 50 years ago. We just didn't realize it as much as we are starting to realize it. You are living in a foreign land, and God has placed you here with the simple purpose of pointing other people to Jesus. You have one purpose, to know Christ and to make him known. I guess two purposes, to know Christ and to make him known. And that is done often through our sufferings. We have the opportunity, according to 2 Corinthians, to comfort other people with the comfort that we have received. If you're going through trials, it is necessary. I don't know why. You might not even get to experience that. This side of heaven, you might not see why it's necessary, but you will one day see why it's necessary. At the very least, I can tell you, you can comfort others with the comfort you have received, and you can show people why Jesus is enough. Mm-hmm.